Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Wow. It is great to be back together with you. I sure do love y'all, and it is such a joy to return and to share in the Lord's Word. And so if you'll join me in Psalm 73, today we're going to do something uh, as an introduction. And I think there's a couple of dangers here, and I want to kind of get into those dangers coming out of the gate today because we're going to spend about eight weeks on the topic of depression. We're going to walk all the way through Psalm 73 in those eight weeks. We're going to break it into about eight parts, and you'll see a little bit about how we're going to do that today. But one of the most important things that I want to communicate to you today is there, there's kind of um, a possibility of one of two extremes occurring through what we talk about. The first extreme is that uh, somehow you get the idea that, that I'm a know-it-all or have all the answers about depression. Uh, I want to tell you that that is not true. And if anything that I say comes across that way, I want you to understand the things that the Lord's Word says, I have absolute and total, complete confidence in. But don't confuse the confidence that I have in God's Word as some sense of knowing all the answers or being a know-it-all about depression. Depression is a great mystery, and it has plagued mankind since the fall. And it is a mystery in many ways, and there are a lot of schools of thought about depression. And uh, so I want to be careful about that from the beginning. Uh, The second thing I want us to be careful about is uh, thinking that um, all depression is like a spiritual problem. And that if you correct the spiritual problem, then all depression will be fixed. Uh, I don't believe that. I believe that there are organic issues in many kinds of depression. And when those exist and persistent depression is there, I highly recommend seeing a very godly counselor who specializes in depression. I have the privilege of calling as a friend Dr. John Haig, and I'm not trying to uh, sell his business. John, that's not what I'm... But I want to tell you something. I've learned a lot from him and from his professional ministry to me and to my family. And so I want to be careful of these two things. I don't have all the answers, and I don't want you to take that that from me in my confidence in the Lord's Word and my confidence in what He says. The other end, I don't think that all depression is somehow just a spiritual thing. And, And if you cure the spiritual thing, everything's fixed. I believe that there are organic issues that that need medical attention. And so I want to be careful with both of those as we walk through. And, and I'll probably repeat myself on that several times. And, and one more thing, kind of removed from those, I think there's kind of a stigma about depression, and people are a little bit afraid to talk about it. I'm hoping that through this we'll lift that stigma. That's one of the things that I want to do because uh, there's a whole psalm written by the choir director of Israel about his own depression. And if the choir director of Israel can come out and write a whole psalm about depression, I think it's okay for us to talk about our depression and to say, let's get that out in the open and let's have some dialogue about it. And so, in fact, one of the eight messages that I'll be doing is about that open, candid uh, declaration and expression of our struggles with depression. And so... Having said that, uh, 
Today, what I want to talk about is, is called the anchor. The psalm, Psalm 73, starts with the anchor. You know what an anchor is? It's that which you affix to. It's that which holds you like with a ship. You've got an anchor that holds it uh, in a storm or holds it uh, when, it's, uh, when it's docked. Uh, a boat when you're fishing and you anchor and it holds it steady. Um, also, there's, there's uh, foundations that are anchored into the ground. Bridges are anchored into bedrock. And it's the idea of something from which you find your stability. And so we're going to talk today about the anchor. And uh, in talking about it, I'm going to describe some things today in, in a little bit of technical terms. Now, every now and then somebody comes to me, and I think they're right, and I'm always a little apologetic, but not, not always apologetic. Sometimes I'm talking like it's a seminary class. And, and, and if that's how I come across today, it almost is like that today because we're going to walk through some things. We're going to identify some things that are going to take some critical thinking and some time. It's not going to be one of those, I'm going to fire you up and you're going to go home and you're going to go do this thing. That's not what today's about. Today I'm going to lay out some things, and as I lay them out, you're going to have to go home and think about them and process them and kind of work through them because they're going to lay the foundation for what we're going to do for the next, uh, for today including the next eight or nine weeks. And so today is the anchor. Psalm 73 verse 1 is the anchor. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. That's Asaph's anchor. It will become important to him through the course of the psalm. It will be the thing that he clings to. But there's a little bit of problem with his anchor, and we're going to describe that today and next week. So the anchor is, surely God is good to Israel. So there's a relationship, God and His people. To those who are pure in heart, there is transformation. So it's relational and it's transformational. I have a relationship with God that is transformational. And through that relationship and transformation, I enjoy personally the goodness of God and His character. I get to drink it in. I get to eat it in. I get to take it into my person. And it becomes a part of my experience and existence. Surely, He is good to His people to those who have been transformed by being His people, surely. And so there's this anchor. Now, I want to tell you, number one, let's just go there, and and maybe this will help us package this up from the beginning. Our anchor is our world view. Our anchor is our world view. And I'm going to explain world view in just a second, but that's what it is. Here's how Asaph viewed the world. God is good. That's his worldview. That's it. God is good. He's good in all that he is. He's good in all that he does. He's good in all that he intends. He's good in all that he accomplishes. He's good. That's his worldview. This is an anchor for Asaph because it is what he clings to When he doesn't feel good. When things aren't good. When things don't go good. Or well in proper grammar. When 
Family life's not good. When physical health's not good. When relationships are not good. God is good. It's the thing that He anchors His soul to, but He struggled with that. We're going to talk about why, but He struggled with that. I want to take you now, marking Psalm 73. I want you to keep that marked. I want you to just jump real quick to the book of Hebrews. Because the book of Hebrews is a worldview book. It was a book written to transform people's worldview. It was written primarily to Israelites who had grown up under the law and couldn't make the transition or wouldn't make the transition into understanding what we would call a Christocentric or Christ-centered worldview where all of our salvation is accomplished through Christ. And so the book of Hebrews is a worldview book. And what the writer to the Hebrews wants to accomplish, and you can make these notes off to the side, it may be a good note to put at the beginning of the book of Hebrews in your Bible as something you could reflect on any time you read it. Basically, the writer of the Hebrews says this is the proper worldview. Number one, we trust God for who He is. That's what Hebrews is writing about. We, we trust God for who He is. He is the all-eternal creator, the benefactor, the good one. And we trust Him for who He is. Second, we trust Him for what He's done for us in Christ. And we trust Him, number three, because of where He's taking us. The book of Hebrews is a worldview book that settles three things. We trust God for who He is. We trust Him for what He's done for us. And we trust Him for where He's taking us. We've, we've laid our eternal hope not... We've laid our hope not in present things, but in eternal things and where He's taking us. And so, this hope... Come with me to Hebrews chapter 6. I want you to see how He pins this hope in Christ of who He is, what He's done for us, and where He's taking us as an anchor. So He, he uses that word, and, and that's why it fits well with what's going on with, with Asaph and why this matches with Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19. This hope, well, what hope? Well, look in verse 17. Hebrews six seventeen. In the same way, God desiring even more to show the heirs of promise, the unchangeableness of His purpose, interposed with an oath, in order that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have strong encouragement. We who have fled for refuge in laying hold of the hope set before us. The hope that He's talking about is the gospel. Christ's death and resurrection, the Messiah, God in the flesh, the Son of the living God, the one through whom God created everything, who He is, revealed to us in Christ. That hope is Christ. But notice what it says in verse 19. It says, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul. When the writer to the Hebrews was writing the book of Hebrews, those people were suffering. They were being abused. They were losing their homes. They were losing their property. They were losing their jobs. They were losing their families, their inheritances. They're standing in the community. They were losing everything. They were being stripped of everything. And they were being told, you hang on, because here's the worldview that will get you through. 
You trust who God is in Christ. You trust what God has done for you in Christ. And you trust where God is taking you through Christ in all of eternity. And you can endure anything. And so the worldview of the book of Hebrews is the fleshing out of the idea that God is good. God is not just good in creation, but God is good in Christ as our salvation. And so the book of Hebrews fleshes out Psalm 73.1. Surely God is good to those in a relationship with Him, His people, to those who have been transformed by that relationship, the regeneration, the new birth that comes through that relationship. Surely God is good. And so the anchor is our worldview. So let's talk about worldview. Okay? Number two. Our worldview determines the following things. And this is how it ties in with depression and why I'm going to spend this much time on it today. Letter A. Our worldview determines the framework of how we believe the world operates. Our worldview determines the framework of how we think the world operates. Now, we've been growing up, most of us, in, a, in, a, in, a, in the South with a common worldview among us. In fact, most of us grew up believing that God created the world. Most of us grew up believing that God is eternal, that God is Trinitarian. We, most of us grew up believing in the virgin birth. We grew up believing in the divinity of Christ. We grew up believing that there are things that are eternal, that cannot be seen, and temporal, that can be. We grew up thinking this was a worldview. That worldview is common only to Christianity. And when you begin to go and live in and speak in and talk with other cultures and you find out they grew up with a completely different worldview, their framework is different. Now, Ravi Zacharias in the book, Can Man Live Without God?, says there are four things every worldview or every religion seeks to figure out. Number one, it seeks to figure out origins. Where did we come from? You go to the Satula, they have one belief about where we came from. You go to Buddhists, they have another view of how, where we came from. You go to the folks who believe in evolution, they have a view of where we th- they think we come through. And, and they have lots of different views of how that happened. You go to every different... And somebody is saying, this is where we came from. Your worldview is trying to figure out where do we come from. Because there is some sense, the next word, meaning. There's some sense that your meaning is tied to your origin. I mean, if you're just a cosmic accident, it's hard to get traction and meaning in life. But if you were created by a holy God before whom you will give an account, meaning is different. If you were created in the image of God to reflect His divine nature and His goodness and character through the things that you do and say and how you live, then life takes on a whole new meaning. So origin and meaning are tied together in worldview. Next, morality. Your worldview determines what kind of morality you'll have. If you believe you were created by God in the image of God, with the meaning of living out the, the, the nature of God in yourself, then your morality will reflect that you believe in the next idea, which is your destiny. You'll stand before God and give an account. But if you think you were evolved from a, an amoeba, from a bolt of lightning that hit some plasma, that boiled some proteins that formed together to begin linking DNA and you're just an accidental billion-year result of a chemical experiment, 
Who are you going to give an account to? So your worldview determines how you see reality as framed. The framework of meaning and origin and morality and destiny. And we're going to get to why that's important, so hang with me. Letter B, your worldview determines the filter or lens by which and through which we interpret reality. When the Satchulas see the sun set and the, 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 the jungle begin to turn orange from the colors of the sunset, they think that Pipwa, the god of the Satchula, is appearing to them. And so they go out to find him in the evening as the sun sets. Their worldview determines how they see the sunset. When they go to the waterfall and the spray forms a rainbow by the sun, they see that Mapion, the goddess of water, is appearing to them. That's what they see. Our worldview determines the filter or lens by which we interpret reality. So when we see something, it passes through the lens through the filter of our worldview, and we interpret it by our worldview. Somebody who believes in luck sees an accident, and they say, oh, that's bad luck. Somebody who believes in the sovereignty of God sees an accident and says, I see the hand of God in this. I know that somehow He is working good in the midst of all this craziness. There's a difference. And so our worldview is the filter through which we see reality, the lens by which we interpret reality. The book of Isaiah talks about eyes that do not see and ears that do not hear. The book of Mark repeats that. The book of Romans repeats that. Where people are unwilling to receive God's worldview and see things as they are in reality and should be interpreted because they refuse God Himself. And so their worldview is warped by the absence of God. Letter C. The feelings we develop through met or unmet expectations. Our worldview determines how we feel about things. An abortionist feels very different than a deeply committed Christian about an unborn child. They feel deeply different about it. They're looking at the same thing. They're seeing exactly the same thing, but they don't feel the same about it. For one, it is for a trash can. For the other, it is for a cradle. There's a difference. Worldview affects everything. The feelings that we have through met or unmet expectations, how we interpret when somebody mistreats us, how we interpret when somebody abandons or abuses us, how we interpret those kind of things, those feelings that we get of disappointment in life, disappointment in death, those feelings are all part of our worldview. Letter D. Our anticipation of the future. I want to go back to C for a minute. I do have a little bit of time to do that. I want to go back to C for a minute because I'm trying to back up each of these with some scripture. And so, um, uh, and I hope to do that a little better later because I just want to do the overview today. I do want to go back through the feelings. Um, when. When the Apostle Paul encountered certain things in his life, he did not interpret them as God not loving him. He did not develop feelings 
of unlovedness. He even saw God's love through his difficulties. That God was, even in the hardest things that he faced, pointing him to something beyond the things to God himself. Now, I want to tell you that from Scripture because I think, and this one we're going to visit again, but I want to give it to you here um, from 2 Corinthians chapter 1. This is one of, to me, the most powerful passages in the entire Bible about hardship and suffering and how we're supposed to interpret even the most difficult things in our lives. And this explains Paul's worldview very well. 2 Corinthians, put your finger on this one. Chapter 1, verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia. That we were burdened excessively beyond our strength. A lot of folks, I hear folks say, God will never give you more than you can handle. Please hear me. That is a lie. God will never give you more than He can handle in you. He has never based your experience and His plan for you on your strength. He has never. In fact, listen to Paul's words and meter them, measure them. We do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength. So Paul had gone far beyond what he could handle. So that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. What do you, what's he mean? He says, we're, we're, we're dead men. We're dead men. There's no way out of it. We're dead. We're dead. Only a few times in my entire life have I ever been at the point of saying, I'm a dead man right now. Have you ever been at that place where you just, I'm a dead man right now. I'm, I'm a dead man, dead woman. Sorry. <laughs> I'm dead. Only a few times in my life have I ever been that. Do you, know, you know where everything passes before your eyes? You know, you kind of have a quick review of how bad you really are and all you wish you would have taken care of just before that moment. But notice what he says. In order that we should not trust in ourselves. What is he saying? He's saying God put us in a place beyond our strength so that we would quit trusting in ourselves but in God who raises the dead. That was Paul's worldview. That whatever place you find yourself in, God is at work. And if you disobey Him in that moment, what you're doing is you are trusting in yourself. And I want to advise you very carefully, you are not trustworthy. If you were, you wouldn't need to be saved by Jesus. You have no capacity to save your soul or even your life. And so Paul said, we got to this place to break our trust in ourselves so that we could move all of our faith to God who raises the dead. What was he saying? He's saying, well, if we die, he's going to raise us from the dead. So we'll die for Jesus. That's how far he had gone. And so, the feelings we develop through our met or unmet expectations are very important, and that's what's going to come to play in Psalm 73. 
because Asaph had developed some expectations based on the goodness of God that were wrong. And we're going to look at those together. Okay, so letter D now. Sorry. Our anticipation of the future. The way we view the future is based on our worldview. In 1 Corinthians 15.32, the folks said, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. In other words, there's no resurrection. So why would we worry about it? Let's just do normal. Let's just be normal. Let's just live like everybody else lives. Let's just go on about our business. There's no resurrection. There's no reason to live specially. There's no reason to live obediently. There's no way, to, no reason to live sacrificially because we just all, we just all die and go to the grave and just kind of melt away into dust and that's all there is. There's no resurrection. Or the promise of His coming. Second Peter 3, 4 says, where's the promise of His coming? For it's, it's been going on for all these years just like it is, and I know Jesus has shown up. Where's the promise? That we're just going to go on about life living disobediently and sinfully. Second Corinthians 5 says, We shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive in our bodies what we have done, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of Christ, we beseech men. In other words, there's lots of different views of the future. Based on your worldview. Letter E, the management of our fears. I'll visit this again in the next section, so I won't say much here except to take you for a moment to Hebrews 2 and show you why this one is very, very important. Some people are fearing being fulfilled. They said, if I stay in this marriage or if I stay in this workplace or if I stay in this calling or I stay in this ministry, I'm not going to be fulfilled. And so I'm going to get out so I can be fulfilled. And, and, and it's because they have this fear of dying without fulfillment, failing to understand, my brothers and sisters, our fulfillment is not coming on this earth. Please take that and deposit it in your spiritual bank. Our fulfillment is not coming on this earth. And so this in Hebrews chapter two is very important. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about this particular text in the next section. So I need to hustle. Here we go. Verse 14. Since then, the children share in flesh and blood. Jesus himself, likewise, partook of the same flesh and blood that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death. That is the devil and might deliver those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. There is a theory called the theory of terror management that believes that all worldviews are developed to cope with the fear of death. Now, I don't agree with that view, but I do believe that the fear of death is a major player in every worldview. Coping with the terror of death and non-existence is present in every worldview. Here, the devil has enslaved all of humanity through the fear of death. And we seek some way to deal with that. Sometimes through drugs and alcohol. Sometimes through lascivious living, uh, promiscuous living. Sometimes through human relationships. Sometimes through different methods and kinds of transcendental meditation to escape our fears. There's a lot of things going on. But fundamentally, this fear of the reality of non-existence or death is present in all of humanity, consciously or subconsciously. And it's playing a role... Letter F, the objects of our faith. Our worldview determines where you're placing, our placing, my trust today. Every one of us came here trusting in something to make us happy, fulfilled, and to give us hope. Every one of us did. 
Some of us may be in something we're owning. Some of us may be in someone we're seeing or married to or going to marry or hope to marry one day. Uh, some of us in, in, in a, a relationship of, of a job or an employment or a career. and You're just placing all your hopes. All of us are coming with some kind of objects in which we put faith that help us cope with the world. Letter G, the nature of our relationships are determined by our worldview. We either use people or love people. Our worldview determines which those are. And finally, our understanding of the origin and nature of evil is determined by our worldview. Now, I gave you all that to... (laughs) to chew on. I can't resolve that today, but that's what's happening in Psalm 1 when he says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. He is expressing his worldview, his anchor, and our worldview determines how we see all of these things that we have just mentioned. The framework, the filter, the feelings, the future, the fears, the faith, the relationships, and the nature of evil. So, number three, let's ask this question. How do we get our worldview? Well, let's go through about eight things that help us get a worldview. So, letter three. I mean, number three. Our worldview is developed through many things. Here are a few of the major influences. Letter A, life experiences. Life experiences. Abuse, neglect, comfort, family, parents, divorce. Illness, sickness, accidents, injuries, debilities, disabilities. All of these things weigh on the development of our worldview from birth until the place we are right now. All of these things. Our life experiences are constantly seeking to shape our worldview. The woman with the illness for 12 years had spent all of her money on doctors. Her worldview was was invested in these guys can heal me. And one day she heard about Jesus. Her worldview changed. She placed her faith in him. She touched him and her worldview had changed and her world was changed. Timothy, who had grown up in a household that taught him the scriptures that would make him wise unto salvation. His worldview was shaped from birth by parents who taught him, grandparents who taught him the ways of God. His worldview was being shaped. Letter B, external influences. They're kind of like worldview, but they, I mean, they're kind of like life experiences, but they're things that are just kind of always going on in the background around us. Advertisements, culture, um, peer pressure. Um, the kind of, of uh, teaching that comes to us in a schooling situation or the kind of expressions of life and faith we get through the uh, different uh, media that we take in in movies and, and all of these things. These external influences shape our worldview. Letter C, personal observation. Romans 8, uh, chapter 1, verses 18 through 22 says that you can see the creation. And that through the creation you can see God's divine nature. 
You can see his eternal power. You can see all of these things about him through what has been made so that you're without excuse that your worldview should be shaped by him and his goodness, but your personal observation is playing a role in this. Letter D, your worldview is shaped through God's design and wiring. Every one of us are designed and wired differently. We just are. It's just how it is. We assess things differently. We're wired differently. God meticulously and carefully designed each one of us. Psalm 139, Exodus 4.11 says, Who made man's mouth mute or his eyes blind, seeing, or mouth speaking? Was it not I, the Lord? John chapter 9 tells us, Why was this man born blind? Did he sin in the womb or did his parents sin? No, it was in order that the glory of God might be revealed in him. God specifically designs you in a particular way for his purposes, for his good to be commended and communicated to you through your wiring. That's why God made you unique. Letter E, terror management. How you deal with your fears. I mentioned that before is... um, product of your worldview, but it also produces your worldview, the things you look to to escape from your fears. When I was, when I was about 17, I, I drank. That's how I, that's how I coped. My dad died. Subconsciously, I was looking to be accepted by some people, and so the way that I did was I drank. And, and I, was a, I was a binge alcoholic. Very seriously, I would wake up having been out for hours and hours. I wouldn't know where I'd been. I wouldn't know what I'd done. I would wake up and some of my friends would have dragged my vomiting self to my room and left me there so that I wouldn't die. I was found in the woods one time. I was coping. I was kicked out of college because of it. Our worldview is shaping, being shaped by how we deal with our fears. Our faith choices. Over time, we start trusting in certain things to get what we want from life. If those things deliver even short term, we place more faith in them. That's why addicts stay addicts. Because when they go back, they keep getting at least some little bit of what they got the last time that relieved them and helped them cope. So worldview is faith choices. How we trust in people or trust in things is why shopping addictions are a problem for some people and relationship addictions are problems for others because we keep going back to something thinking it's going to deliver and maybe it gives just a little bit of it, so we try again and we try again. The woman at the well had had six relation, five, yeah, five relationships and she's working on number six because she thought that that was going to give her what she was looking for in her worldview and meaning in life and security. And so faith choices, what we trust in to give us what we're looking for. Okay, two more and then we can drop back to Psalm 73 and kind of set the tone for where we're going. Letter G, and this one is so hopeful, regeneration. This is the one we need. In order for my worldview to be right, I must be born again. In order for your worldview to be right, you must be born again. There is no other way. That's why Jesus talked in terms 
of blind eyes being opened and deaf ears being opened to hear, hearts being changed. It's because my only hope of a proper worldview and truly understanding the goodness of God and having an anchor for my soul for everything I will ever go through is through the new birth given to me by faith in Jesus Christ. There's no other hope of a good worldview. Every other worldview will deceive me and doom me. My only hope is a worldview shaped foremostly by the transforming power of regeneration. And that's why letter H is transformation and sanctification. This work of regeneration in my heart is going to give me an anchor that is the same that kept Paul through his hardships. Peter through his hardships. Stephen through his stoning. James through his beheading. The disciples through their beatings. Paul and Silas through their imprisonment. John through his Isolation on the island of Patmos. The saints through the centuries who would be burned at the stake, who would be slaughtered. The Christians in the Middle East today that are being murdered for their faith. What sustains them is a regenerating power that gives us a new world view. And that world view is what eventually delivers Asaph from his depression. That's why I'm introducing the study with this. Because fundamentally, what Asaph says in the first verse is what saves him in the last verse. And this is important. Because the key to spiritual depression is not the power of positive thinking, but it is the fundamental belief in the goodness of God Operating on your behalf every moment of every day of your entire life. And that there is not a moment in your human existence that that is not perfectly true. That God is good. That He's operating for your good. He's designing for your good. He's planning for your good. He's carrying out your good. But He does it through mechanisms that are beyond your capacity, my capacity to understand. That's why faith is necessary. The necessity of faith is the belief that when I don't understand how this could be working for my good, I still trust the One who is carrying me through it. When I was around four, three, just in the earliest parts of my memory, there was an outbreak, and I believe it was German measles, and it swept through the Atlanta area. And this was something that we had not been vaccinated for as children. And so it required a vaccination. And so my mom and my dad took me to the doctor's office. I was little, 
All the other shots I'd ever had in my life were pre-memory. You know what I'm saying? They were beyond, way back when I don't remember anything. But this age was the beginning of my memory that I can recall now. This is my mom and dad take me to the doctor's office. You know, everything's cool. Get in the car. Go to the doctor. Here's the doctor. Hey, what's going on? Sit me down. And, and this guy proceeds to jab a needle into my body. And I'm looking at my parents saying, you brought me for this? Now, I want to tell you something. I still have some serious issues with needles today. Today. I'm 52 years old, and I have serious issues. Every year when we get ready to go on the mission trip, and I have to get my little medical card out and find out what's due, I'm like, I don't have to have a shot. That is so good. But then the year that I find out that my typhoid only lasts for two years, and So I have to make this trip over with everybody to Natchez to go get our shots and act like everything's cool. You know what I'm talking about? I don't want to scare the team to death that the scaredest guy in the car going to get the shots is the guy leading the trip. Okay, you don't want that. And so I get there and I'm like... I get in there to the nurse's station like sweat just coming out. And I'm going, oh no, man, this is just... And so, so they're talking to me and I'm going... When are you going to do this? You're going to do this? Tell me. Tell me before you do it. Will you tell me what your arm, what hip, hip? What? And I'm really scared. And I'm going through. And it all goes back to a time when my parents carried me into this doctor's office and without any kind of introduction to the idea, he just jabs me with this needle. And I'm going, ah, what are you doing? You're invading my body and there's pain. And it wasn't. Here's the deal. My parents were working for my good at that moment. And there was no way that they could explain to a four-year-old that what they were doing in that moment was actually for my good. I did not have the capacity to know. No amount of medical terminology, no amount of explaining, that we're going to take this attenuated virus that we've taken and broken partway, and we'll shoot that virus into your body. And because it's been attenuated and broken, your body will build resistance to it. And as a result, when the real virus attacks your body, you'll already have antibodies, and it'll attack them. Do you know what a four-year-old thinks about that? Huh? Some of you right now are right in the middle of God carrying you into the doctor's office and he just poked a needle into your body. And there is no amount of explaining by God that you could understand why you're going through what you're going through. But you know what? I knew the character of Buddy and Betty Walker. And so I did not stop trusting them in that moment. I hurt. I've got some anxieties as a result. But I never stopped having confidence in them. Because I knew this. They were always working for my good. As we go into depression, here's what I want to share with you. I have no idea where you're at. I do not pretend to know the depths of your depression the level of your anxiety, the pain of your emotional turmoil. I do not. But here's what I know. God is good. And He has proven His goodness primarily through this one thing. And Sean, I want us to sing for the invitation what we sang before I preached. Where are you, Sean? That's what I want us to do. Can y'all do that, Dale? Y'all can pull that off? Because here he is, living 
He loved me. Dying, He saved me. Buried, He carried my sins far away. Rising, He justified. Freely, forever. And one day, He's coming. Oh, glorious day. That's my worldview. What's yours? What's yours? I have no hope but Christ. And whatever this life holds, whatever the pains are, whatever the depression is, whatever the anxieties are, I know Christ. And He said that He will never leave me or forsake me. And so I joined the Apostle Paul when three times he had prayed, Lord, deliver this from me. Deliver this from me. Deliver me from this. And the Lord said, no. My grace is sufficient. For my power, Paul, is perfected in your weakness. And so Paul said, I would rather than boast about my infirmities.